This is Manifest Mindset, where we delve into our true passions, inspire the best out of ourselves, and live our life with true intention every single day. All right, let's do it. Welcome back to another episode of Manifest Mindset. We're here again, another week, another day, I guess. How are you doing, Nick? I'm good, Bob. So, Bob, million-dollar question to ask you. Are you hiding behind the door of your office right now? No, I only work Sundays for right now. Well, no, oh. I only work um, the Saturdays I'm off, so I'm not in the clinic right now. Um, okay. Well, it sounds much clearer, and I think that's a good thing. Yeah, no, I, I'm home. This is my regular spot where I do the podcast. Um, so, yeah, no, it's only Sundays where, or, or late Sundays, because if I have a patient and then I'm also – uh, doing a podcast as well. Because I think last Sunday, what, what happened when we were recording, Nick, um, we, we had our meeting around like 6.40, 6.50. I end my shift around six uh, five five thirty, and then I work out a little bit afterwards. Oh, there you uh, go, man. Got to get that good workout in. Yeah, so I was just staying behind, and turns out that place had a really poor signal, but it still, uh, still went through. <laughs> so more importantly, how was the workout? Was it worth it? How was the workout? I, I was just biking. I did like a 30-minute bike ride. All right. There you go. A little something. Good stuff, man. Yeah. So tomorrow will be the same thing. Tomorrow will be a little 30-minute either cardio, treadmill thing, or, or something on the bike. And what what do they have for equipment that you can use for workout stuff besides just cardio stuff? We got a, we got a nice uh, Pilates machine. All right. <laughs> Pilates Bob. No. <laughs> I don't... Uh, they they have kettlebells up to twenty pounds, but that, okay. that's about it. Um, so nothing. It's not really high tech. It's it's a yeah. The most fancy equipment we have is a Pilates machine. But yeah, how's the the week for you, Nick? Any any new updates on courses? Anything like that? Honestly, in a good way, it's been pretty chill. Um, I mean, like intense during the week for sure. But this is actually we were today on Saturday to meet up with one of our mentors at his own clinic and stuff. But something came up, so we canceled that. But I have today off, I have tomorrow off, and these were the first days I've had off of any kind of work or slash commitment since Easter. So it feels good, man. Wow, yeah, what are you doing? (laughs) Uh, This morning I played basketball for a little over three hours, and that felt amazing. And pretty pretty lazy afternoon, um, attempting to do some uh, and then going with the California DMV, which is always a heartache and a heartbreak. And then, yeah, that's that's about it. You're doing the podcast, being a little bit lazy, enjoying some time around the house right now. Wow, that's nice. I mean, it's good to take, take some time. You've been really pushing with the uh, – yeah, you've just been really pushing, and then it's good to take the time off. Yeah, man. So tomorrow I got a lot of basketball, a lot of tennis, and beach time. It's going to be good. The beach. Wow. The beach. <laughs> When's the last time you've been to the beach, Nick? Um, Josh, thank you. I've I've actually I've been some like hiking trails and stuff, but like I probably avoided the beaches for a while during COVID. So this is gonna sound crazy for a dude out in California, but by this point with COVID and stuff, right? It might it might be like nine months or something like that. Nine months. I believe it. I mean, I don't know what part of California uh, you're in. If you remember, to, like. One episode or two episodes ago, I didn't know how big California was. Um, <laughs> Bob, you're just as bad as everybody from New York. who's like, oh yeah, it's like New York City, and then like 
update this like tiny little extension off of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, that that'll be that that'll be nice. Tomorrow, some sports and some uh the beach. Yeah. And it's and it's Mother's Day, so if any of you guys that are listening are, are mothers, uh happy Mother's Day. Um hope you you have a great weekend. Absolutely. It's a good thing Mother's Day and April Fool's Day are not the same day. Otherwise those would be some pretty bad pranks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um so I guess today we can talk a little bit. I don't know. Did, did you have anything you want to talk about in your mind? I mean, I was, I was definitely, Bob, curious about that case you were telling me about last week um, and seeing kind of any new approach. If she did come back, if she ran away and got scared, what was going on with that? Yeah, so so surprisingly, she did, she did come back. Um, to my surprise, she did come back for a second visit, even though uh, she was significantly worsened um, walking in the clinic after visit one. And then just to give like a like a basic overview from from last episode. So visit one, I think she she has either like a three, four, five, six month history of uh constant ankle pain. Um it's only in her heel slash midfoot area. Uh really the only things that make her worse is using shoes with high arches or using shoes with normal arches um, that support her. Uh, so she doesn't have any mo- movement loss in her in her ankle. She doesn't really have any straight loss. Her, I forgot to mention to, this to you last time, Nick, but she's also um, a fitness instructor. So ah, day, that brings a whole other personality to the ballgame. Yeah, she, every, every day she does, I don't know, she does... Um, hours of cycling and she goes on runs and all that stuff. Um, but, but her pain's all, always there, pretty constant. So I mentioned visit one. I did really, I rolled out the, the back as best as I could. Um, and then I loaded her with some dorsiflexion. She significantly got worsened, especially her, her straight leg raise when I brought her into dorsiflexion. Um, and I tried to reverse the process with some plantar flexion to see if I could do anything with, with directional preference to see if any, like, movement can help uh, either with symptoms or with function. So really nothing happened with, with just normal uh, plantar flexion day one. I sent her home with that. Um, she came back. She was – I saw her in total of three visits since I last talked to you, Nick. Oh, wow. Um, Dosing them out. All right. So, so it was her eval and two, two visits. So, yeah, it was a good, good amount. Um, second visit, she came back, was pretty much um, exactly the same as last time. I, I'm, I'm confusing. I'm confusing some visits, but, but basically... Okay, you, you tell the story, Bob, and let me be honest with you. Either way, I don't know this woman. I'm I'm going to have to believe you before I believe you. Yeah, well, well okay. So, so visit one, she came, she came to the eval. I sent her home with a lot of flexion. Um, to just rule out the spine. Visit two, she came back. Then I did all the ankle stuff with her. Um, and and she worsened really badly with, with that planner, with that dorsiflexion. Uh, I think either one or two. You're believing me either way. I'm, I'm telling the story. I'm the captain go. of this ship. Next. <laughs> um, oh, captain, my captain. Yep. So um, she came back, and then I was like, okay, you're pretty much – overall the same and I talked to you last time I was going to do a lot of like uh, some more plantar flexion because of how much you worsened with dorsiflexion 
So I did some traction with plantar flexion, did a lot of repeated movements of that. Um, and surprisingly, she her, her, pain, her pain, I guess, moved from constant to more so, like less less constant, less intensity. So I just sent her home away with that. I asked, and to, uh, to clarify, the less constant, does that mean this woman had a period of relief that she has, even if it was momentary, that she hasn't had in a very long time? Um, no. So her intensity, let's say, went from a three to a two. Okay, but still, so it was less, um, the pain number was lower, but it was still constant. Yes, but then some areas that, some areas of, I guess I'll take another step back. So some areas of her ankle were constant, and some areas became, like, they were gone in terms of pain, but other areas were still there. Does that make gotcha. sense? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I was like, okay. How about we take a video of this, and then I'm just going to have you or your boyfriend or somebody at home just do this every few hours kind of thing. So I gave her just some traction with some plantar flexion um, to do that at home. And then she came back. I think this is visit three. And now I think I'm all cut up. So visit three, she she came back. She was like, yeah, I'm – and and this was also the the, – the visit I was talking to you about. Um, so she came back. Her pain is now like 0. 0.5 constant, uh, con- consistently wise. Um, it's still there, um, but she she wasn't that compliant with exercise. She maybe did it like three times a day rather than every every couple of hours. So I'm sorry, Nick. I said so, but it still made a difference in the number amount of pain. Yeah, yeah. So, so then we uh, then I just retested. I did that repeated um, plantar flexion with traction, and then the, the pain was gone. It went from a 0.5 to zero. Um, so I was like, okay, you just need to have your mom or somebody do it every two hours, and then I'll, I'll see see what happens. Um, in terms of the tension that that you recommended, and and me try and see look, look for where her like her neural dynamics. She didn't really have any more tension. When she came back, like her straight leg raise was clear, um, and right. my heel pain wasn't there when I tested that the the next time she came in. Perfect. So again, she's somebody that you know she does a lot of movement. She talk about the running, the biking, and everything. Um, my theory is, if there even is anything involved, um, or was anything involved, it just kind of worked its way out as she got the more mobility and just natural like pseudo nerve blood movement through the cyclical biking and running. Yeah, I mean, it, she she never stops biking or running. Um, exactly. But, but yeah, I mean, it could be. But yeah, that that was my long winded <laughs> my long winded way of kind of getting to say, okay, she she's a little bit better, and then we'll see what happens visit four with her. So to to confirm, Bob, is that she had no more pain? Is that correct, or at least at the end of the visit, she had no more pain? Yes, at the end of the visit. She said that her ankle felt normal compared to the other side. Okay. Um, and then now we're kind of waiting, okay, when she comes back in, has that maintained or what, I, what is actually going on? Correct. Correct. Um, now, now, she's still, I guess from a directional uh, directional preference or McKenzie uh, classification viewpoint, so her, her pain was abolished with the traction and plantar flexion unloaded, right? So I, I did it and then she has to do it like somebody else at home. So I, I tried to see in the clinic if she could do it herself loaded, 
um, so right. like with, with, with body weight. But she couldn't do that, so her pain came back on with that loaded plantar flexion. So she just did, um, I'm sorry, semi-loaded plantar flexion. So she hey, just like, when you say semi-loaded, how did you have her perform that? So basically, she just sat on her foot on a chair. Yep, yep gotcha. So, so we did some of that, and her, her pain came on again. Um, but we got her back on the table. We did some more traction, plantar flexion, and that went away. And I was like, okay, you, you just need to go home and do do this every every few hours. So so I guess next visit, my plan would be to, to see if she's able, one, if she's able to maintain her symptoms, if she's even any different, really. Um, and two, if she can tolerate that, that semi-loaded plantar flexion again. So that's the plan. If really nothing changes, um, then I'll just have to really just, I guess, throw her into that bucket of, okay, I need to really just do a lot of ankle work, again, see if there's any more tension, and then work on that because it's pretty much constant pain (laughs) that she's been working with for a while now. Right, and at the same time, you've released a lot of that pain. So, yeah, again, we'll see how consistent it is. Um, Again, you you subscribe to this McKenzie stuff um, a lot, and I'm – I, I think it's effective when it is, and I'm also a little bit critical knowing that we have to keep our eyes open to different windows, different avenues of treatment as well. And, I mean, if we go down that path where you're thinking, right, about the directional preference for plantar flexion and how that can help improve motions, um, I'd have her, you know, let's say that she came back next time and she was a little bit better but not quite as good as before. She still has some stuff going on. I'd have her do, like, kind of do those, like, heel sits where she's just, like, sitting on her feet, just like you said, loading into plantar flexion. Maybe what I've done for people is prop up, like, a pillow or two so that if they can't handle all the load by going with all their body weight, it's a modified amount of body weight out over their heels, over their ankles. And that could be a way of just progressing, even if it is painful, um, just really clearing that out for sure. Uh, putting the pillows away are next. Yep. Um, so if she's, like, on the floor or, like, um, on, like, the table or something, with, like, in a quadruped position, and she rocks back so her butt's on top of her heel sitting on them, I would put pillows between her heel and her buttock. That way, if she can't go back as far, then it would just be a less percentage amount of force of gravity of body weight on her ankles. So kind of grading pneumatic compression. Oh, when I, I'm sorry, I'm just going to clarify, just in terms of that, so I did have her do that the end of visit two. It's either the end of visit one or the end of visit two. I, it's, it's foggy now. Sure. Um, but I sent her home away with that, uh, and, and really, she was okay with that. Okay, gotcha. Uh, it's, 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 but it's just, just like directly just sitting all the way on them. Yeah, so, so if you can just imagine, I guess, the... Uh, the back foot, so the foot, the effective foot on the chair, like a lunge position, and then sitting into plantar flexion that way. Gotcha. And then some more of a muscular loaded position as well. Yeah, yeah. So do you have any, I guess, ideas for that? Because in terms of loading into that plantar flexion, um, just in that quadruped, she, she's fine with that. Okay. Um, I mean, if, she, if she's fine with that and she's fine with everything, then I think you've truly exhausted the mobility component um, to her issues, even with repeated motions and everything. And that's kind of the route that you're going down now is you're saying, hey, we're going to see if there's any change left or do we have to stay in this 
repeated motion paradigm for her now. And then it's just, okay, let's test for functional deficits and see if there's any difference side to side that would be an impairment that could be related. I'm guessing you'll find some things, even if it's subtle, um, you know, if she's in this pattern of pain for a long time, that she could be, like, even though she says she's being active and moving it, right, if you're in consistent pain, you're likely avoiding some part of the movement or motion. And so seeing if there's any kind of weakness or stability challenges that she's at work on improving, you know, hoping that that will kind of decrease part of this chronic pain that she's been dealing with. But just giving her education around that too, that, you know, hey, this is, we've got to get the body kind of desensitized to this, to normalize part of this experience and kind of help her understand, you know, why that pain is still there if it is. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm curious to hear your thoughts as well with this next. So, so again, like you know, I, I do I guess subscribe to this McKenzie assessment process. Um, and it sounds like it's been really effective for this patient so far. And, and yeah, well, in terms of that return to strength and and adding in that balance and looking for functional deficits, um, really for for the system itself, it's it's really I mean, there's four stages of uh, reduction for any sort of things with a directional preference. There's the reduction phase, the maintenance phase, recovery of function, and then prevention phase. And then that recovery of function really comes in when uh, sort of recovering strength or, or uh, stretching the muscle. When that pain is, is able to be controlled for, for I guess, Unless it's, a, it's more more of a chronic pain person or a chronic pain patient, that's in sure. that category. Um, but I guess for a regular, I guess something with, with the directional preference, if we can't get anywhere in the end, then we may bring them there to that um, chronic pain group. But also at the same but time, you're saying that let's exhaust all the options possible until yeah, we're at that point. Yeah. So, so an example I like to use is like you know how. Let's say you have a splinter in your bicep. And, again, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well, Nick, just for more of an eclectic approach. Yeah, my um, first thoughts are how do you end up with a splinter in your bicep? Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> you have a splinter in your bicep, right? So if you have a well, and, and just – Biceps bicep brachii, biceps femoris, because that kind of going to look very different. <laughs> well, well, just think of it as a very big bicep, uh, a very big splinter. <laughs> A very big uh, splinter for, especially for you, Nick, it could be the, the, the biceps brachii, um, just for this example. So if, if that splinter is really in that muscle, it, no matter how strong you are, you're not going to be able to lift, I don't know, 20 pounds because it's just so painful, right? It's going to be weak. It's going to be tight. But then once you take that splinter out, all that motion and strength comes back um, as you start moving again. And, and that's really, I guess, that process of, okay, we're, we're going to see how much of this ankle thing with directional preference for this person can we get out first? Like, how much of the splinter can we take out if it's really there? And then see how much strength comes back. And then, then we see, okay, do we need the strength in our stretcher or see anything with that? But, no, I, I, I agree. But what what are your thoughts of of that, Nick? My, my doctor told me I'm weak and I have, like, my, my wood element is off in my bicep, and I can't. I should avoid doing all activity now. I'm, I'm, I'm confused. Why is, why is there a splinter? I didn't think I had a splinter. There's, there's no acute inflammatory. No, I'm kidding, Bob. I, I would say my thoughts and reflection off that, right, where it's like, hey, 
what element is pain inhibition, right? And not only is it pain inhibition in general, but we know that's a huge factor, right? You think about like a quad diffuse atrophy from post-surgical, right? And those changes that normally occur, right? We can talk about any muscle that has some kind of pain inhibition. Absolutely. So we have to look at the mechanism of why there's pain there, whether that is a true splinter or whether that is some kind of directional preference, whether that is a just disuse, whether that's something like in a higher processing pattern of the brain that they um, don't use, whether it's a habituated motion that they're not used to using. Um, we can talk about 10,000 reasons why they might have pain there and they experience that pain. At the end of the day, is pain that area going to make them use it less? Absolutely. And I think there's two schools of thought we can go down. Um, and usually there's a little bit of a, a mix in between that's important and helpful. One is kind of like you were saying, hey, let's hold off all, all major progression, all major other activity until we get that main part figured out. What I like about your situation with this person is you're not limiting a major function, right? You're not saying, hey, like, don't just cycling this running that you're doing, right? Don't do it. Don't be active. No, you're keeping her moving, right? She's a trainer or a fitness coach or whatever you call her. Um, and that's something that's part, and part of her identity that's very important to her. And you want to keep her doing that stuff. So I just think that's important for our listeners out here not to take that out of context. Like, let's keep the person active, but in a stable amount of active, right? Not actively, like, over-progressing it, but keep her normal part of her life going. And there's the other side of it saying, oh, you've got pain, right? You need to learn how to process this pain better, how to understand that most tutorial, how to understand... You know, what the chemistry is in your brain, at least it's constant pain of what kind of sensitizing and great exposure moving the way up um, and tolerating it. And I really think that ultimately our treatments kind of work in a dichotomy of both and a well, influx outflux of both at the same time. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, th- thanks. Thanks for, <laughs> thanks for sharing that, Nick. I, I know I went on a bit of a bit of a ramble there. I just think that it's it's important to consider, right, is to acknowledge within ourselves what am I allowing to dominate my thought process, right? Am I, because again, sometimes we have these little biases in our mind, like, oh, this person, right, maybe my 75-year-old female, I want to avoid pushing the exercise and, and or intense exercise and tolerating it a certain amount of pain, discomfort, whatever. Well, that might be your bias versus your 30-year-old male, Right? Whereas, why wouldn't you just create it to the tissue capacity of that person instead of having your own bias? So, how much do you feel like we have to get every little tiny metaphorical splinter taken care of before we have more function? And how much do you feel like we have to kind of say, hey, just like tough through or desensitize? And I think if we're kind of both in the context of the patient, Bob, but even more so out of it, if we're more aware of our biases and how we operate within that, that's going to make us better clinicians and better clin- uh, critical reasoners, clinical reasoners through this process. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm processing what you're saying right now, Nick. Um, but no, th- thanks for sharing that. I, I know um, th- there's definitely more of a, an eclectic approach out there of, okay, there, there's all these different, um, different, I guess, thought processes and, and things to really use with the patient. But it seems like it's just um, getting that patient, one, not, not 
instilling fear in them and getting them gradually back to their activity with this great exposure, but also, I guess, educating them on various various subjects, various uh, topics. Um, on that, Nick, what, what, what do you think? Yeah, I think um, I think my main point is let's just be mindful and intentional of what we're doing. So if we're saying we're taking the great exposure approach, great. If we're saying we're taking more of the, hey, let's remove all the splintering approach so we can tolerate it, it's important to know, hey, is this splinter, is there actually a potential of tissue damage that we have to worry about doing harm, or is it really pretty safe? And even if it's safe, am I doing this in a manner that's going to kind of flare somebody up or make it pretty manual and tolerable for their long-term success, right? Because I think you have this in mind, Bob, right? You go through this progression, do this kind of mechanical teaching style for, hey, let's get people back, kind of re-educate back to function and back to, like, a normal quality of life without with having less of a risk, right, the prevention-type mindset. And so I think we have to have that in mind for other interventions we do. And just be, again, I think it just comes down to being more aware of, okay, am I treating this person? thinking I have to, at this stage of this visit, have to remove more splinter, or that I have to help through more great exposure. Because I really do think that there's, that's kind of two dichotomies to an extent. I hope that we're all treating the ways and touch on some element of both of them. You know, for one person coming in, it might be 90% for one aspect and 10% for the other on visit one. And hopefully over time, as the clinical picture evolves and changes, we adapt as clinicians as well to recognize that and adapt for what they must need. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, I, I don't want you to get me wrong, Nick. Like, we, like, as, uh, I guess, as McKenzie people as well, we, we don't, it's not like we, we're all focused on the splinters all the time, right? Oh, 100%, 100% absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad you spoke up about that, Bob, because that is uh, not the pain, it's not the pain at all. Okay. Okay. Well, well, it's, it's, like that there's that function and then there's all that strengthening piece and the the great exposure as well that that's added. But so Bob, actually, I think this would be a great opportunity for you. Um, could you tell, cause I do think that there is like, right. There's this like very common thing out there. Like, Oh yeah, McKenzie, it's all about extensions. It's all about you know, just, just move it in this direction, like about 150 times a day or something. Right. Could you kind of describe to some of our listeners out there just about, you know, how the McKenzie system can help patients for not just getting out of pain, but kind of the long-term function as well as some of the approach behind it, because I do think it's something that is unfortunately a bit misunderstood. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I don't want that to get a bad rep either at all. Yeah. I mean, and I'll talk, I don't know how much I'll get across or how accurately I'll get it across, but, and then you can share your thoughts as well, Nick, on, on um, what you, what you heard I said, basically. So it really took to me that the McKenzie approach, the McKenzie method or the MBTO uh, approach is, is really more so an assessment process than, than a treatment uh, style. Um, you mentioned clinical reasoning. I Personally, for me, most of my clinical or all of my clinical reasoning just follows around the, the MDT paradigm of, okay, the patient is better. We're going to do more of that. The patient is worse. We're going to stop that, do something else. Um, it, it, there's really like, a, I guess, a, a framework of thinking of, okay, how do we progress with this patient and, and a system of 
okay, what's really next in terms of what do I do kind of thing. Um, I don't know if that made any sense, but, but let me give an example. So, so one of the, the main things is using a, a traffic light guide for um, treating patients. Okay, um, so there's the red light, yellow light, and green light. So if you're driving, right, so red is stop. And this is when um, you produce their pain, and their pain is worse 15, 20 minutes after you stop that activity. That tells you, okay, this is a little bit more, um, quote-unquote, dangerous territory. You either have to be more careful, uh, you be more cautious, uh, and maybe they're not even mechanical. Maybe you there's nothing there to 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 work on in terms of um, something you can do in a clinic. Then there's the yellow light. The yellow lights are people that either are produced, so their pain is produced or increased in the clinic, but then they're not worse afterwards. Or their pain is decreased but not better afterwards. And that just tells you, okay, tread lightly again, but you can keep on doing more of this stuff. And then green light is their pain is better with repetitions, their motion is better, and then you just keep on doing that. So really, that traffic light guides you, okay, where do I go next in terms of, okay, I'm doing extension work for a person, right? And they're, they start with only back pain, and now they have leg pain, and they're worse. Okay, I'm going in the wrong direction. I'm doing the wrong thing. Let me move away and go and follow this light system, the traffic light system, and get to a better point with that. Um, I think that's one of the main, I mean, it sounds very, very simple, but I think there's that inherent safety that's built into this traffic light system as well. Um, but that's, that's a big part of just clinical reasoning for me. And again, it sounds simple, but it, it helps guide me. Where do I go next in terms of, um, doing this, doing this treatment kind of thing? Does that make sense? That's, it's, Yeah. What, what do you think? What, what are your thoughts next? Yeah, it does, Bob. Um, as I hear you express that, you know, it's I, I like the phrase you used at the beginning where this is a method, a style of assessment, of reasoning, and it's not much based around treatment, but it guides treatment in terms of, hey, what does this patient need most? Well, it's not complicated. It's everything I found in my examination, and that's kind of what they need more or less of. And allowing that to guide is, you know, how it should be. It's not like, oh, I have this one theory on something. No, like this is literally exactly the objective data that I found in your examination, which gives me some type of empirical evidence that we have a solution or a potential solution. And we have theories for, you know, what do we see? How do we treat it and everything? But that's where this all stems from. And I like your analogy of kind of the perception of safety of certainty um, based on patient's irritability and response to treatment, right, um, with the whole traffic light thing about red light, yellow light, green light. And I agree that, you know, it gets a little more nuanced than that, too. So when it's a red light, it's like, okay, maybe I was doing the right thing. Well, they're, they're flared up, right? Maybe I did the right thing. And maybe I don't need to go in a complete opposite direction, but my dosing was crap, right? My dosing was too aggressive for that. It might, their system might not have been ready for that yet. But it is what they need, and we have to kind of discern how to do that. The yellow light, where I'd say yellow light is probably even more more dangerous because what it sounds like is, okay, yellow light is really not a big change, right? It's like, hey, it got symptoms. Symptoms got worse, right? In the moment, then they calm back down. 
well, that tells me there's really no change. So then we have to check your other objective signs to make sure the objective signs are changing. And if the pain happened at first, then went way down, of then, right, of then after that, the objective signs got better or changed or got worse, and that's fine. Then we can deal with that. So it's a patient where there's no change at all, where there's no difference. That, that kind of, that's the most scary thing because that means we have no idea what's going on for better or worse. So I think I'd, I'd throw a hint of caution into the wind about jumping quickly from, oh, it made the pain worse. I have to change course completely. I don't think that's always the case, um, but yeah. I also think that it's important to consider it. Now, my other thought is, right, this whole traffic light thing, that's fine and all well and dandy if you're the clinician. But how do we get our patients to stop talking on the phone while they're driving and texting while they're driving to actually pay attention to these signals, too, throughout the normal day to be on the same page through the therapeutic alliance and communication? And that might be a battle for another day. Yeah, I, I, you're, you're right, Nick. Um, let me just address the, the first point of, okay, it's the right, the right direction, right, um, for, for the red light. Of, okay, maybe it is the right direction. Maybe we're just going too far too fast. So when when there is a red light, um, we go to or the McKenzie system really goes to what's called force alternatives. So there's four different types of force alternatives that that can occur. Um, one is the most people that that they think of is it's they got to change directions. Other is the amount of force. So maybe we've gone too far too fast. Another one is the angle. The angle of different movements. Should we move them into more flexion or expansion? And then also position. Should we unload them or load them um, kind of thing? And really, it's not just the ones we hit a red light, okay, we got to change directions. It's more so, have we fully exhausted this direction before we move to somewhere else, or did we just go too far too fast? Absolutely. I, I, I completely agree. And, you know, it's all about, okay, we're noticing a change in the patient, a change in symptoms. Like you said, some, there was some kind of signal that made that final electrical circuit process a red light at that one intersection at that one place in time. And with all the information that output it saying, hey, I don't want a red light, right? I want to ha- I want to sail down the highway smoothly. And in the city of Los Angeles for me, right, avoiding red lights is not a real possibility. But I want to have more green lights. And so what do I have to do? What variable outcomes do I have to change for all this electrical computing system that represents traffic in the city? for me to get more green lights. And that's what we have to figure out, like you said, with the direction, the dosing, the angle, the intensity, all that important stuff that are often going to have to be for you to alter. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I think this was a, a super productive and interesting conversation, Nick. It's uh, uh, we're, We graduate from the same school uh, <laughs> a year apart. Um, you went to the Kaiser residency, finished that. You're doing a fellowship. Um, I'm doing, I'm really, I guess, with this, uh, I guess, really subscribed to this McKenzie assessment process. And it's interesting to see how our clinical reasonings or, or how our thought processes differ a little bit. Um, but at the end of the day, they're quite similar. Um, Absolutely. It's all about, you know, seeing the evidence in front of us having a thorough and significant process to gather that evidence in hopefully a valid and reliable way. And with that, adapting it to how the patient responds as we change the evidence and change, you know, hey, okay, I got this response. That's not the response I quite desired or maybe even expected. How can I change response? Well, 
let's take a look at all my knowledge, skills, reasoning to be able to do that for the patient. And, um, you know, it's, I would say the points I'm talking about are definitely not the totality of my thoughts, beliefs, and experiences. Uh, they're the things that come up in this moment in context of the conversation, I'm sure, in a similar way for you, Bob. And, you know, for some some clinicians listening on this conversation, they might think, wow, these guys are kind of like arguing with each other a little bit, right? It's like they kind of disagree. Not necessarily, right? It's like this is more of just, oh, this would be the kind of conversation I'd have with some good friends at lunch over an interesting patient base, right? It's like, oh, let's share ideas. What do you think about this? What's your angle? What's your take? And who knows? Maybe the ultimate thing I end up doing is the same thing that you do for a different reason. Or I end up doing something completely different for the same reason. But it's all about that assessment, reassessment process. Yeah. What's that saying? There's there's many ways to the same door. <laughs> I mean, there, there's the old, like, there's, you know, many ways to skin a cat. But, uh, you know, the whole uh, animal rights thing gets a little bit loaded with that. Yeah. <laughs> No, I mean this is interesting. I mean it's it's um who knows, maybe this is what the podcast can can turn into like every few episodes of okay, we, we bring a patient on, we go through what your thought process is and how I go how my thought process is, um and just compare and contrast. And and I think that's basically what, what happened with Absolutely. my and, you know, I was I was reflecting on the same thing recently, Bob. You know, we did these extra clinicians of twenty five, thirty plus I've not just been through years of that experience with Chase after their entire career. And you're like, oh, what will make an extra PP for this or that and the other thing? And it's so different. Their approach, their techniques and everything. Well, there are some core elements that are very much the same. And at the root of what they do, like you look at them externally, it's like, wow, they're incredibly different and just as amazingly effective. Yeah, no, that's, that's, a lot of like most of the approaches, as long as they're you're listening to the patient and then seeing how they respond, it's it that that's where it is that that test and retest model of okay, we're doing something. Is it really working? Or if it's not, we have to do something else. Or, or and, and I, I'm going to get on my soapbox for about 20 seconds, and we're not going to go into this conversation, Bob, because it would lead us down this road forever. But just for consideration in the future, just as we physically test, retest. Um, through our interventions there. I think we have to emotionally and kind of like, you know, yeah, through the patient's emotional context, we have that too, right? Through their belief system, get at that too. And truly aim our interventions, our communication styles around how we can affect behavior change, belief change, the emotional systems that people are a part of. And so I would encourage any clinicians out there, right, to attempt to have a lens of evaluating those things through conversation and interaction too. Yeah, definitely. All right, Nick, I think it's a, it's a fruitful conversation, but I think it's still time to just talk a bit about accountability. I mean, this is um, where the main core of the podcast is, just being, keeping yourselves accountable. Last time, I just wanted to, to really, I guess, document properly and get my notes in order um, just to so I can have like a, like a better transition of okay they're, they're coming back okay what am I doing next kind of thing yeah um, and, and learning that documentation system that that's been going well I've been putting in now I've been putting them in but I haven't been checking um, what to do next 
because because they, they just the patient just come in and drives and or droves whatever the order is. Um, so I don't really have time to actually read what I wrote from last time. Um, but I think so. Those, in, in, in the nature of test retest, right? Do you feel like the sake of even writing them down, going through that, even without looking, has helped your process at all, or not really? Oh, definitely. It, it ingrains my head more. It's like, okay, your name is Joey. Oh yeah, Joey. I wrote wrote your name last time. Um, kind of thing. Um, but no, I mean, it's, yeah, yeah, it, it helps. It does help again with that nature of test retests or, or rechecking baselines and things like that. Absolutely. But, and, you know, just, just to be a little, a little meta about this, right? I was more saying that for you, right? Hey, as you have this new intervention for yourself and your behavior changing in your life, does it actually affect any kind of change? Yes or no? That sounds like it did. Yeah. Um, Nick, how about you reflect and talk about your accountability, and I will do. I will tell my accountability after that. Love I, I don't know what it is. <laughs> All right, I, I can stall a little bit. So for me, my thing was about, um, you know, I had a new mentor coming up, and we can definitely talk about that in another episode for sure. And I've just kind of reading, um, getting some more pages in, reading part of some of the work and philosophies that she was a part of um, to have some good context over that. And so I absolutely did that, and it was actually really good. And I kind of used some of that in the rest of reparation, the reflection for patients I had coming up with her. And so I think it was, yeah, just very fruitful for my learning. Now, Bob, do you need more stalling time? Or no, no, to... Okay. I'm good, I'm good. Um, yeah, I mean, for you, you said – your new mentor came on. You wanted to prepare for that. How'd that go? Did, I mean, just a real like minute shot. Yeah, Plus. totally. Right? Because I know we can't uh, we can't talk to everybody these things. Otherwise, uh, well, we wouldn't keep doing them, right? So it was it was really good. Uh, I think the first time I'm ever with like a brand new mentor for the first time is like there's definitely that like nervous, excited energy, and I always have to tell myself that hey, nervous means you care, and in the brain, neurophysiologically the process of being nervous and excited are the exact damn same thing. And I always go like a little bit slower um, when I'm with a mentor for the very first time, like trying to vibe off their energy, trying to, you know, kind of see their feedback, their perspective a little bit. So that definitely slows me down. I know it's a habit of mine a little bit that I've got to work through. But other than that, it was really good. Great to get to know her a while, um, understand where she was coming from. It's It's funny where it's like, People joke and they talk about, like, you know, she's not trying really hard to think of educating you. And, like, like it's not confusing for her. The confusing points for her are how can she dumb it down to the level, I, like, I'm currently at so I can understand it better. Um, so it, it's great, man. It's, it's fascinating. I love it. Um, you know, she has to probably step down four staircases to get to the level I'm currently at um, with her deep and rich experience. And she just meeting me where I'm at along the way, making me better and better each day, patient each week. Wow, that's great. No, that's exciting. I'm, uh, for, for me, I, I'm certainly excited for, for that one-on-one mentorship next in the few months coming up. Um, no, uh, for me, I have, have a lot of things happening. I have, I have another content course that I'm doing for the McKenzie Institute. Um, and I'm giving another speech for... Toastmasters nice. uh, next Saturday. So I want to have, I want to just do my speech, have that well written out, 
give a good speech, and then come back and report how it goes to you. And maybe even share a little bit about Toastmasters. For Dude, I would, I would love that. I think that sounds like a great um, opportunity. Subjects matter for our next episode. Yeah. So for me, um, dude, tomorrow is my first day off. Well, today kind of was too. Um, since Easter, my accountability is I'm gonna chill the f out and enjoy every damn minute of it. I love it, Nick. That was that was great. Yeah, sorry, I thought you you shared it already. Apparently not. But chilling is great, Nick. I love it. You're gonna go to the beach. It'll be you'll get a tan for what you can get. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> and for those of you who don't know me in person, you just call me very white. No, <laughs> no. I mean, it'll, it'll be fun regardless. So, All right, Nick. It was a pleasure. All right, Bob. You're well. All right. Take care.